Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, I had heard of Plato before. I knew it existed, but I'll admit I didn't know much about it until very recently. Plato was an online and interactive learning computer system developed in the 1960s at the University of Illinois. But in the early 1970s, Plato got truly networked and the users took over, users in this case being teenagers. Plato had already pioneered such things as touchscreen computing, but the kids taking over meant that concepts like forums, message boards, email, chat rooms, instant messaging, multiplayer games, and even emoticons or emojis were pioneered on the Plato system. Today we're going to talk to Brian Deere, the author of The Friendly Orange Glow, The Untold Story of the Plato System, and The Dawn of Cyberculture. You'll hear the story of Plato's development from someone who actually used it, and I highly recommend buying the book because this is really technology history done right. 30 years of research on this topic uh, a topic that's been criminally overlooked in technology histories up to this point. And so hopefully, after Friendly Orange Glow, Plato will take its rightful place as one of the key precursors of our modern online world. And believe me, no definitive book, more definitive book, will ever be written on this topic. So please enjoy this excellent conversation with Brian Deere. Brian Deere, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug right at the beginning, although we'll remember to do it at the end. We're going to be talking about uh, a great book um, that you all can get right away called The Friendly Orange Glow, and it's about a technology called Play-Doh, which we're going to discuss in detail right now. Um, I wonder if we could start by telling me the story of your personal first encounter with Play-Doh. Sure. So um, I was a uh, brand new freshman undergrad uh, roaming the campus, getting lost at the University of Delaware in uh, September of 1979. And uh, I wandered into the music building because I always like music. And I thought, well, let's see what's going on in there. And, uh, you know, the way it uh, works with music buildings on a university campus, every um, room has some different musical instrument sound coming from it. It's like some somebody's practicing a saxophone and then a violin and a piano. So it's all noise throughout the building. And I'm walking through and I see this one room uh, that has no lights on. And uh, like a lot of rooms, like even you know this room, there's there's a glass floor to ceiling window that lets you peek into what's going on in that room. And it's a classroom. And um, the lights are off, but there's all these orange screens and all these terminals, and everybody's got headphones on, and a lot of them are reaching out with their finger and touching parts of the screen, and they're listening to stuff. And then I'm looking at and looking through the glass, and I see that um, that's musical notation on the screen, and like the same crisp level, you know, high resolution graphics of musical notes and staffs and all, measures and all that, just like in sheet music. And at the bottom of the half of the screen is a keyboard. And that was impressive. Um, and it's all bright orange. Mm. Okay, It's just monochrome, black and orange. And um, I had never seen anything like it. The whole room had the vibe of like an uh, air traffic control center, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it was so, so I wander in, and I see a poster on the wall that says, Welcome to Play-Doh. And, uh, and then it had little instructions. You could sit down at an available terminal and um, uh, log on using demo as an account and uh, get a demo. And of course I did that and uh, I was very impressed. The graphics were um, astounding, you know. I mean, considering every other computer I'd seen was, you know, punch cards and, you know, all kinds of... uh, Well, primarily text. Yeah, it was all... If you even had a terminal. Right, right. You know, sometimes it was just sort of like a... uh, uh, a printer slash keyboard sure. combination, real primitive stuff, 
And um, so, yeah, that was my first exposure to Play-Doh. I kept coming back. Every time I, I tried it, some, I, you know, someone would say, hey, forget the demo. Try this. Mm. And they'd give me some other menu. And then I would discover that there's games on the system. And mm-hmm. there's, there were what were called notes files, um, which is essentially message boards on every topic manage, imaginable. And that, you know, once in a while you'd notice that people weren't using these things just for education. They were laughing. They were playing games. They were chatting with people. And then I realized Play-Doh is an interpersonal computer system. It's not just, you know, a number cruncher or, in this case, a sort of an educational delivery system where you're, you're a student, you sit down, and you take a lesson. And, you're, you know, your professor assigned you one hour a week to take some lesson in anthropology or biology or whatever the, you know. So um, I was hooked. And I had entered Delaware as a English slash journalism major. But after a few weeks, I think it's safe to say I was a Plato major. Mm. <clears throat> and um, unfortunately, that was not an official degree. <laughs> but you, so, did, you ended up working for, this is getting ahead of things, but you, yeah. you worked for Plato for a little while. Well, I, I, I found out real fast that you could get a job at the Play-Doh project uh, at the University of Delaware. You just had to learn how to program using their uh, language called Tutor. And uh, then you could do stuff, you know, for the project. And it was like, duh, done. I mean, you can get paid to have fun, you know. So, um, you know, within like two months, I had taken all the seminars learning how to program the stuff, and they, they hired me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was great. And, um, and then I found out that, you know, University of Delaware is like this distant remote outpost on the net that is Plato. It was all over the world. I didn't realize that. I thought this was just a Delaware thing. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, you know, Delaware is not even the big deal. Illinois is the big deal. Yeah, yeah. So um, I did what everyone did in those years, which is you make a pilgrimage to Mecca, mm-hmm. Mecca being Urbana, Illinois, um, to the building from whence you know the orange glow originates, and uh, which is a, turns out to be a really frumpy, really old, ugly, beat up brick building, not the kind of gleaming uh, ivory tower which I thought it would be. You know, like some a, super high tech technology hub, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I assumed. I mean, something this futuristic would be like. The building would be just some miraculous thing that Google or Apple mm-hmm. would just, you know, um, react to. But no, it was uh, pure function. It was a hundred-year-old building. It used to be the power plant. Um, the entrance to the doorway uh, says "powerhouse" above it, which I th- always thought was appropriate, given that uh, I would argue Plato totally was a powerhouse. So, well, before we get into the background of, of Plato. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, people would say, now try this, now try this. So you personally, what, what was it that, that you were doing? Was it the games? Was it the chatting with people? What was the primary thing that in those years you, you did on Play-Doh? Oh, well, no, I mean, you know, there was... Uh, Delaware um, was notorious for establishing certain kind of rules mm. because um, people discovered real fast that Play-Doh was an incredibly cool thing to do and a cool place to be online and that kind of thing. And it was the only place to be online in those years. So um, they, you know, um, when I was getting paid, when I was a, a student programmer for the project, um, you know, I, I wrote all kinds of programs. I actually wrote a spreadsheet in like 1979 or 80 um, that figured out the uh, pay raises for the whole staff which was kind of funny because I got to find, I got to see the pay raises for everybody, just me and the person at the, you know. Uh, so, you know, and then I, I would work. They would ask me, like, go clean up this program or you need to program this or that, um, lessons in various subjects, areas or whatever. A lot of it was utility work just for the, for the, uh, the organization itself, you know, and their staff and managing that and all that. Um, but then, of course, you know, after hours or whatever, you know, there were games galore, and I, you know, you could never tire of discovering games. I mean, they were incredible games, and a lot of them were restricted because they were so wildly popular um, till late, late hours. And then you discover that there's a whole other scene where people are hanging out, um, doing all-nighters on Play-Doh, uh, you know, playing games, chatting. Um, and if you were really lucky, you might find somebody who knows how to get on what was called the link which would essentially 
connect you um, a thousand miles to Minnesota, bounce off the Plato system there to Illinois, and then you could you could link in and sign on on the Illinois system all remotely, and uh, check out all the games and the notes files there because that was like, you know, that was like the New York City of being online when it came to Plato in in the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was basically nonstop discovery. Every single time you sat down to Plato, there was so much new stuff that it was completely overwhelming. Kind of like you know, the net is that way today, and it's so overwhelming we we can't even comprehend it anymore, mm-hmm. right? I mean, anyone's news feed. If you're on Twitter or Facebook or anything, you know, the the feed is too much, um, and it was it was too much even on Plato. And, and and that was addicting, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's ground this then. Um, you you mentioned that um, Plato was designed as an education tool, and in the book you start off with like B. F. Skinner, right. and things like that. So tell me about the genesis of Plato and the idea. Basically, it's the idea of using computers as education tools for the very first time. Right, uh, and and I I, I think. Education tool would be too gentle. I think the, mm. it was a much more bold, crazy, ambitious uh, goal. Basically, the vision was uh, starting in 1960. You know, um, was to uh, design a computer system that would teach and behave and act and, and do everything that a human teacher could do uh, to teach a student some subject, and it, and the. Um, system was designed in such a way that it didn't really matter. They were very agnostic as to what the subject matter might be mm-hmm. or how you might teach it. And so there are all kinds of, you know, design styles and approaches that many teachers uh, have. There are all kinds of different things. Um, there's, uh, you know, um, many different philosophies on the best way of teaching. And it turns out that, surprise, surprise, you know, most people differ in their way they, they, they learn um, the fastest and the most efficiently from everyone else. So there isn't any single way. So flexibility was crucial. And this was the vision, and it was a gigantic leap. I mean, I'm still kind of in awe that they made this leap, that um, a computer could essentially do the job of teaching a student some um, subject, whether it was you know the humanities or the hard sciences or anything like that, so that was the idea initially. And the Plato Project at the University of Illinois had a very crystal clear mission kind of sense to it. The people there were very mission focused. I often uh, uh, equate them with the sense of mission that the Apollo mission had. You know, it was totally an era of optimism you know, wild optimism. And, it, and I figure, you know, it's like, hey, if, if the U.S. can go to the moon in, in, in 10 years, you know, all during the 60s they worked on it, um, why not, you know, do something much more mundane, quote-unquote, and that would be to build a computer system that can teach. And there were lots of projects going on around the country doing this, but Plato was probably the most unusual because of its hardware um, they, because the, uh, the guy who founded Plato was an electrical engineer and really kind of like a Nikola Tesla type, mm-hmm. a real wizard when it came to electricity. One person told me once that um, he was known to stick his finger into an electrical socket just to sense whether the, uh, the power was really 60 hertz or not. He could tell. But you, you, know? haven't, you haven't named him. Who are we oh, Don, Donald Bitzer. Yes, okay. uh, Don Bitzer, uh, his nickname was Bits. Mm-hmm. Which is is almost corny mm-hmm. in the sense that you know you know because of computer bits and all that stuff, but um, B I T Z, but um, you know Don Bitzer was an absolute character who belongs in in the pantheon of you know computer luminaries right up there with Wozniak, Jobs, Bill Gates, the rest of them, um, an absolutely you know a brilliant guy, um, and he had this dream of building a. Uh, flat panel monitor um, that when you looked at the screen, when you looked at the pixels, you were actually looking at the memory. So if a dot was lit on the screen, that meant um, that, that, that unit of memory, that bit of memory was on. Um, and, and so 
the, the, the huge breakthrough, I mean, it was a major patent in the, in the 60s, was the uh, flat panel display. And you know, here we are sitting in a room right now with a big flat panel display on, on the wall. Um, this, you know, I don't know if this is plasma or, L, or LCD, but the whole notion of plasma televisions um, comes straight from those patents for Plato. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's basically one long progression of development from the fundamental uh, Plato, uh, Plato uh, plasma patents. So that's what, that was one of the things that made Plato really unusual. It took um, basically you know, 10 years to get to the point where they were in production and being manufactured and getting in the hands of students. So in 1972, the, uh, the Plato terminals now had uh, 512 by 512 uh, graphics, bitmap graphics displays with, that were orange pixels on a black background. And there was nothing else in the world that looked anything like it. And they added touch screen, uh, touch uh, sensitivity to those screens so you could reach out and touch mm -hmm. and interact that way. And um, whereas, like, at the time, Xerox Park had decided to go the mouse route. And the Xerox Park people and the Plato people had all kinds of debates. They visited each other's labs. There was a lot of um, interaction between the two labs, which no one really knows about. And I devote a whole chapter mm -hmm. in the book to that. Um, and one of the things they debated about is whether there should be mice or uh, touch screens. And Plato decided touch. And, it, you know, it's interestingly, they did that, what, 40 years before Steve Jobs marches out onto the stage and introduces the iPhone and announces, we're not going to, you know, do any kind of device. It's going to be your finger. No stylus. For touch. We right. have five stylus. Right, right, exactly. And uh, um, they were making the same argument in the Plato uh, world you know, 40 years earlier, which is kind of interesting. So so you mentioned, um, I'm going to bring it back to the beginning again. Um, it, it, it comes out of that same burst of funding that after Sputnik happens and the government, the U.S. decides that it's behind technologically with the Russians. So it, it Plato is funded by some of the same people that will eventually fund what we know as the ARPANET and the right. Internet. It's the uh, ARPA, NSF, and people like that. Right, and and which is you know remarkable. I mean, there was a very small cast of characters in Washington writing the checks for basically all the major computer innovations that were going on in the '60s, and um, basically the same people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, 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 JCR Licklider, and uh, who you know. Um, who's kind of you know famous in this field um, was involved with ARPA and Bob Taylor, who would wind up going over to Xerox Park, was very much involved with ARPA. Um, these people all knew the people at Plato; they were very familiar with that project, and of course, they were all driving ARPANET as well. So um, the two projects were just two of many and working in parallel. Uh, not a lot of cross fertilization. Certainly, they were very different projects with different goals and reasons and all that stuff. But it's just interesting that the people writing the checks was, were the same, roughly the same people. So um, you said that the project takes about 10 years before it actually gets in front of real students. On well, well no, with, with, the, with the orange displays. Okay. But um, prior to that, they were using CRTs um, in, a, in a much more primitive well, way. Well, so this is what I want to get to is... In the 60s, we're talking about the era of mainframes. We're talking about that even timeshare is still a new concept. So the initial versions, I think there's four. Right. Plato, right? So so Plato's one, two, three. In a classroom setting with students, right. how, how is the system set up? Well, Plato one was basically the prototype. Mm -hmm. That that was what you you know a startup today would call the demo. Mm -hmm. You know um, that was the proof of concept, and that basically uh, wasn't even time sharing. That was 1960, and it basically proved that one student could sit down at what at the time was a ten dollar used broken TV set that they just found somewhere, and uh, the tuner didn't work, but the screen worked, and that's all they needed. And a little box that wasn't even a keyboard, I mean, that would be too grandiose to describe it that way. It had 16 buttons on it, so it didn't even have the full alphabet or anything. And um, really, really crude. I mean, total proof of concept. And it was all hooked up to the Iliac, which is one of the mythical iron beasts of, of the 
earliest age of computing. You know, it was built in 1952, and it was full of thousands of vacuum tubes, which would last, you know, uh, uh, a matter of hours. You know, a few thousand hours, or maybe it wasn't even that. I mean, they they, they were burning out all the time, and there were thousands of them to replace. So it's just a you know nightmare kind of machine that that they were working from. There was no programming language; it was all pure machine code. Um, it was worse than assembly. I mean, it was like really zeros and ones and stuff. Um, so that was the environment they started with. Plato two also ran on the Iliac, um, and they they got time sharing working on that. And uh, the Plato people argue they invented or at least built and demoed timesharing before MIT. If you look up timesharing in Wikipedia or anywhere else, all the history books or whatever say MIT did timesharing. And they did. It's just that Illinois did it a few weeks or months earlier. The problem is Illinois was not prepared to do patents yet. And, uh, or it took them like a year to get around to doing a patent. So by the time they were you know, got around to it, uh, MIT had already grabbed that one. So uh, Plato III then came out in around 1963, and they had moved by then to a control data 1604, which was a uh, faster, cheaper, better uh, machine. It was kind of like an early supercomputer, even though if you look at it now, it looks like a, a desk with a couple of boxes and a, a couple of tape machines, and uh, not very impressive at all. But at the time... You know, it was the latest, coolest thing with lots of knobs and blinking lights and, you know, everything you'd see in a movie, you know. Um, and they used that thing all the way up to 1971. And that was Plato three And Plato four, and we're talking Roman numerals here. So Plato, Roman numeral four finally came out around 72. And that's when everything completely changed. It was now running on a control data cyber supercomputer. Um, and I have often characterized... Plato four is really being pronounceable as Plato IV in the sense of in, intravenous, you know, because it was so addictive, uh-huh. um, and uh, that was the one that was in, uh, designed to support four thousand simultaneous terminals, you know, pretty huge scale of of time sharing. They never quite got to that, and I talk about all of that in part three of the book, which is uh, getting to scale. That's the whole theme of that, because you know, even back then the whole dream just like any startup today it's all about scale right you you come up with an idea you get everything kind of work working out and then you scale 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 and you hope to get to millions of users that's exactly what they were thinking even in the 70s so well also um like reading the book i felt like that the tutor programming language which you already mentioned was also the big breakthrough again using startups as a metaphor here because when Tutor comes along allowing anyone to program modules for it, then you have that let a thousand flowers bloom right. that sort of lets the system take Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I would say, in a way, Tutor, the arrival of Tutor was kind of like the arrival of HTML. Because, mm. you know, one of the, the great thrills of the early web was that you could view source on any website or you know you just go and it's like oh that's how they did it oh now look how they did that yeah, yeah. and you know it was like oh that's a little trick that's very interesting you know and then people and then you just started to notice everybody was copying everybody and the same thing was happening in the Plato world and so there was a uh, really thrilling exciting era uh, just like we would then see with the web years later where people were copying code um, sort of challenging each other with new and more clever ways to do something with less, you know, typing with less characters so that it would load faster and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very similar kind of effect. Tudor comes out in 67? 67, And it right. was implemented by a grad student? Was he working on the project? Yeah, yeah. Uh, his name was Paul Tensar, yeah. and he was just really frustrated. And, you know, this is another thing. Um, Technology usually comes around, you know, it's, it's kind of like the old saying about um, uh, innovation is, is, and necessity, or, you know, uh, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? And um, I think it's, I don't know if it's necessity or just pure frustration is the mother of innovation, you know? But um, Tensar was just really frustrated with the, I mean, the snail's pace of productivity that he saw uh, to build some of the uh, biology kind of lessons that he was building on the Plato 3 machine. And, um, 
And it was because the, the, the development environment was just really, really crude. There were a lot of things happening uh, very quickly in 67, 68 that would make it more productive, but um, they didn't have a friendly programming language um, that was kind of like um, what Apple did in the 80s when they came out with HyperCard, mm -hmm. which, you know, amazingly doesn't exist now, which is insane. The, uh, you know, iOS should have HyperCard built in. You should, anybody should be able to quickly build up an app and share it. But I guess for security reasons, they can't do it. But it's, it's a real shame. Um, so when Tudor arrived, and it arrived practically overnight, because Tensar basically sat down and pulled an all-nighter to put together um, enough commands so that you could like put stuff on the screen, you could draw circles and triangles and all that. And it was the equivalent of the classic hello world that you see in any programming language. You know, that's the first program you ever write. Right. It's kind of like, do we have a pulse? Yes, we have a pulse. And we can even put it on a certain point on the screen, or you can put it at the bottom, the top, whatever. Um, so that, that's kind of, uh, and Tudor was such a gigantic leap ahead. Um, everything else that the Plato people were using to develop stuff at the time almost you know, very, very quickly uh, fell out of favor and, and, and Tudor kind of uh, ruled from then on. And it, and it became a, a very rich language which um, for all time, even up to today, any computer scientist will poo-poo and, and look at and go like, that's not a real language. That, that is a, a you know, horrible you know, kludge of a language and all this stuff. But it wasn't designed for computer scientists. It was designed for plain people who had a lot of work to do, needed to crank out a lot of material, be as interactive and fun for the user as possible, do lots and lots of graphics, and, and, and get it up on the screen and keep cranking this stuff out because they had a huge amount of work to do. And so for those kind of users, which is basically mere mortals, it was an incredible leap forward. And it turned out that that language also turned out to be great for developing games, mm -hmm. something that I don't think they were, they were, they were quite thinking of, you know, um, and, we, and we can talk about that some if well, you yeah, want. Well, yeah, no, let's, let's talk about that because to me another great moment in the book was it's almost like the system breaks out of the lab when all of a sudden the users start to tinker with it. And so I feel like you, the point that you make in the book is that it's when they, they first, you know, they, they take it to high schools around Illinois, right, at first. And well, no, no, it's, okay. not, it's not quite like that. Um, and I wouldn't say the system broke out of the lab. It was the kids broke into the lab. Gotcha. Oh, yes, you're right, you're right. So, <laughs> so, tell, ba tell so, so basically, um, there were high schools all over Champaign-Urbana, and there was one legendary high school that was actually one of these laboratory schools that the university itself ran. And it was right across the street from CERL, C-E-R-L, which is the computer-based education research lab, which is the home of Plato. Mm -hmm. That's what's in that frumpy building. And um, so this little high school was called Uni High, or University Laboratory High School. But everybody just called it Uni or Uni High. And um, those kids had it great because they were so close. And they would literally just wander over, and the doors were open to the Searle lab, and they'd go in, and they wouldn't get kicked out. That was the incredible thing. Almost every other computer lab in that era you know, was a locked-up place where you needed to have a Ph.D. and wear a lab coat and probably a stethoscope or who knows what. You had, you had reasons to be there. And at Searle, um, they were just very open and, and inviting, even with kids wandering in. And um, part of it was practical, practical because they never had enough budget. They never had enough people working on the system. And if it turned out a kid was really bright and only 13 years old but could do the job, hire them. Right. And, and it turned out they did. There's lots of stories of that in the book. Right, right. So, so that's how the, uh, kids were drawn to it. And, of course, word got out all over town that the coolest computer in the world with a crazy orange display is right there on the campus. And they won't chase you away. You can actually do stuff, including make games, and of course, you know that just that was that was the end of that. Um, much to the embarrassment, I think, of the people uh, running the Plato project, because you know um, this was never an official thing in the uh, the proposals that they sent to the National Science Foundation or to ARPA or anything like that, saying, "Oh yeah, by the way, we're now going to build games mm -hmm. and turn Plato into the first 
you know, big social media platform. And no, that never happened. It was the kids who brought all that sensibility into the system. And I devote really basically a third of the book, which is part two of the book, um, to that whole story and, and the, to the characters that arrived and, and did stuff. And, and that's really the core of the whole story. Uh, I, you make a point similar to one that I've made on the show before, which is that one of the things that it seems like no one in early computing it never occurred to anyone that computers would be a great communication tool. I love, yes, exactly. And time yes. and again, on this show, in your book, and other histories and things like that, it's always the communication that is what gets the mainstream users hooked. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pure human nature. People like to yak, and they like to connect, and they like, you know, and they, and, and it, what really seals the deal is when their friends or family members are on the other side of the screen and they know that they can connect with them. And, and, and uh, sometimes in real time, mm-hmm. or at least if it's asynchronous, it's gonna, they're, they're going to get back to you. And there was something incredibly satisfying about that. And, um, and that happened on Plato for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I always liken it to, you know, just, just look at Star Trek. You know, um, when you t- interacted with the computer on the show... I'm talking about the original series. Mm-hmm. You know, you would say computer, and it would, and you know, uh, you'd hear the the woman's voice, uh, uh, Marjorie Ma- uh, Major. Major Barrett, yes. um, saying working. You yes. know, and then you hear, of course, you'd hear a teletype, which is goofy, <laughs> but you know, typical Hollywood. And it would, and they'd spit out some numbers and results and everything, and it was very crude, and that was considered futuristic. And even in in the movie 2001, when you interacted with HAL 9000, it was just the same kind of thing. And what's crazy, in my opinion, is we're going right back there now with Alexa and OK Google and all that. Ooh, I shouldn't say that, I guess. But um, (laughs) though I have said that on on several radio programs, I've you know I've said OK Google. Go order one million copies of the Friendly Orange Glow. <laughs> Alexa, buy the Friendly Orange Glow, yes. Right. As um, many copies as you can get, on Prime, of course. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting. How do you do social the same way if we lose the screen mm-hmm. and we lose the keyboard, you know, and, 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 you know, and I think we're headed that way. I think we're actually... That's a whole different discussion, but you know, it's an interesting one. But yeah, I think I think we're headed that way. So, how early is the networking component of it? A lot of it early on is, like you said, is asynchronous, so you can log in, interact. Someone else can come behind you, see what you've done, and leave messages. But when does it get to be Minnesota, Illinois? Well, well, a, a couple things to clarify. I mean, okay. um, it, it you know, when all the social stuff started in 1973. It was basically instantaneous, and that you know that um, uh, uh, I mean, you could go online and you could uh, live chat with people. You know, there there were chat rooms starting in '73. There were message forums, so chat rooms are live, and I mean, they are live, liver than uh, uh, AOL instant messaging from the '90s, or or particularly texting today, or or Apple message or something like that or a Facebook message which are basically little text boxes you type something in then you send and then the recipient gets the the whole block of text or maybe it has pictures too or something like that that wasn't the way Plato did it everything was live character by character so if I typed A B C D E you saw A B C D E on your side if I then did a backspace and got rid of the E you saw on your side the E suddenly go away so it was literally live typing. And when you have five people in a uh, uh, what was called Talkomatic uh, mm-hmm. uh, chat room channel, um, all doing that at the same time, it's, it's pretty intense to watch. And, um, but it also turns out to be a great progress indicator from a, a user interface design mm-hmm. perspective because you could, you know, it wasn't like the way, say, uh, uh, iOS, uh, you know, Apple's message program works now or You'll, you'll see that it'll at least tell you that they're typing. You don't know what they're typing, but they're typing. Mm-hmm. Well, on, on Plato, you always saw exactly what they were typing. And that actually intimidated some users because it's like, I don't want, to, I don't want people to see yeah. me making typos all the time. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, or, you know, one thing that was amazing is some people were disabled and they were using Plato and they typed really painstakingly slowly. 
And if you didn't know that, and the person out there in the ether somewhere in the, you know, in the cloud was uh, type, chatting with you, but they were really, really slow, the, the, the sort of the uh, default assumption was that they were not very bright because they were typing slow. And that was never the case. It was just they, they you know, it took some time to type. So, uh, and then when they finally would meet face to face, you know, the, the non-disabled person would be just completely blown away. And so there was a fascinating sort of uh, uh, thing going on in that, in that regard, too. Well, you know, maybe the way to do this, because I have it as a list here in my notes, uh-huh. let's just go through these lists of innovations. So we're already talking, and these are m- maybe not created necessarily by Plato, but Plato is amongst the first to yeah. put these together in a... In a uh, a, a large scale like you're, you're talking about. So we've been talking about Talkomatic, which is the online... That's uh, the chat room stuff. Um, uh, term Talk? Term Talk arrived because of Talkomatic. So mm-hmm. Talkomatic was, was done by teenagers uh, so that they could talk to their friends. I mean, it was pure social app. Absolutely pure. Um, and uh, the, the system staff discovered, like, gosh, this chat stuff could be really handy. Why don't we build a a, a uh, instant messaging style, in other words, one-on-one, uh, the equivalent of a typewritten phone call between any two users on the system. And we'll build it in such a way that you could be doing anything in the system and then invoke a chat at the bottom of the screen no matter what program you were in at the time. You could be even in the middle of a game or something, which would be really dumb because all your opponents would totally kill you by the time you got out of the chat. But... Um, so yeah, so that was term talk, and that arrived in December of '73, mm-hmm. and completely, you know, changed everything overnight. Um, uh, there's a really interesting period of 12 months between '73 and '74 when this whole suite of social apps appeared. Um, so there was Talkomatic, there was Term Talk, there was Plato Notes, mm-hmm. which arrived in August '73, and that was basically message forums. And a guy named Dave Woolley, all of 17 years old at the time, he wrote that. And he wrote it from scratch. He had nothing to go by. There were no other message boards that he had ever seen or heard of. So he just designed it the way he thought it was you know, a, a reasonable way to organize it. And that design has carried through in pretty much every message board today, except for a certain kind of style, which is um, extremely uh, tree structure, kind of like Reddit. Or uh, other things where you know you can post a topic, people can reply, and then they can reply to the replies and, re- and nest, nest, yes. nest, nest, nest. I call that the cocktail party mm-hmm. design, which means it's complete noise. You can't keep you you know they can't make heads or tails of anything. Um, on Plato, um, things were much more linear um, in a true kind of message board uh, uh, fashion, so it was easier to sort of see where things were going in terms of the conversation. Then email arrived in 74 um, on Plato. It was called Personal Notes, which was basically a personal version of a private uh, version of Plato Notes, which was the public thing. And, um, and then there was a News Report, which was an online newspaper. And it was even crowdsourced. Now, they didn't use that word at the time, um, but if you look at it now, it's like, yeah, that was crowdsourced. Basically, meaning you, that anyone could contribute an article. Anyone could contribute articles, and if you got good at it and you kept doing it regularly, then you might get, you know, uh, reporter status. And if you did that enough, maybe they would bump you up to editor status. And um, so, you know, it's an absolutely remarkable phenomenon. They were even wanting to do online ads. And the university completely shot that down, saying, we are a nonprofit institution, blah, blah, blah. But they were thinking that way. They would have done it if they could have. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to get press passes so they could cover events in town. And, and the police were like, um, now, you know, uh, you, you need to go to a computer to get on your newspaper? And, you know, and, and they responded saying, like, well, you need to go to the newsstand to buy your newspaper? And they, they were at a total standstill. They never got anywhere. But it, it's kind of funny... All the thinking was there, and they would have done it, you know, even a more full-fledged version of what we have today, if they could have. And it would have been really something. The whole notion of money driving everything was not there yet, you know, in all these social apps. It was there for fun and for glory, basically, because you could get real famous if you were the author of Talkomatic or some popular game. 
Um, and uh, and there were lots and lots of famous kids going around who were really popular at parties. Mm-hmm. You know, when they discovered you wrote so and so, that kind of thing. You know, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> well, um, let's talk about the games. Okay. Um, and there, again, there's a whole list of them. But but the point that I want to make is that these are, er, like you know. It, even through the mid to late 90s, the idea of multiplayer, true multiplayer games, as opposed to playing against the computer, was still a rare thing. Mm-hmm. But in the 70s, they're already doing... Yeah, multiplayer was was the norm yeah. on Play-Doh, except for things that were like uh, solitaire-type games, you know, like literally solitaire or other card games and that kind of thing. But And the, the way things started on Play-Doh, Play-Doh 4... Um, is also remarkable because the same pattern would emerge in the 90s with the net. And, uh, and uh, the, the term was a little different, but uh, on Play-Doh, what emerged first was something called big board games. And the idea was you'd, you'd go into a game and you'd see uh, this opening screen would be a list of available players, and they're looking for somebody to play with. And so you'd, you'd go down the list, you'd find somebody... Um, and you would, you know, tap C or, or whatever the command was to challenge them. And then the other person would get notified immediately, like, hey, so-and-so wants to play against you. And then you could, you could uh, accept or deny and that kind of thing. And if you both accepted, boom, you're in the game and duking it out. Whether it was spaceships or airplanes or uh, tanks on the moon uh, shooting at each other and whatever, behind mountains and craters and all that stuff. So big board games were, were a huge hit. And um, a number of things happened because of the big board games, one of which was they started adding messaging to that wait list uh, page. And that's kind of where a lot of the uh, chat stuff came from because, you know, people were starting to discover, well, heck, if I can just yak with somebody online, that's just as much fun as going into the game. So that was, you know, the inter-game message, intra-game messaging turned into a lot of chat stuff. Um, and then in the 90s, you saw a whole bunch of companies come out that, you know, they were venture capital backed and everything. Now, they had much bigger scale because we were already into like the 100 million level of Internet users in the world, maybe in the, you know, and, and growing into a billion very quickly. And that was so you're talking about much bigger big boards. Um, lists of available players and everything, but still, that was that that came and they were um, very successful. And I think you know, Steam um, and all that whole uh, phenomenon today has a lot of that in it as well. You know, and now that's a what multi-billion-dollar company. Mm-hmm. It's just you know, every, the only thing that's really changed two things. You know, the graphics and multimedia capability because of processing power, um, and the scale of the user community. You know, is you know, Plato was a tiny microcosm, but all the ingredients were there. Um, so uh, then people got kind of bored with the the big board games and wanted to do more adventurous stuff, and literally adventurous stuff in the sense that um, you know, Dungeon and Dragons, the board game, came out in like '74, I think mm-hmm. it was. And there were D and D players at the U of I and in the high schools around there, and. Um, they they started porting that game to the computer just like people were doing elsewhere, but no, n- not with the ambitions that they were doing on Plato. Um, they started out with graphics, mm-hmm. and um, they you know it was obviously more fun as a multiplayer kind of thing. So within the span of you know eighteen twenty four months, um, you started seeing dozens of dungeon games, um, and you started seeing this phenomenon that would happen again in the uh, web and then the, particularly in the in the smartphone app ecosystem, starting around 2008, you know, with the iPhone and then Android, and that is everybody trying to outdo whoever made an app that was released the week before or whatever, you know, with more features and a cooler and faster and better and more fun and all that stuff. So the, all that stuff was kind of going on um, to, uh, you know build stuff as a reaction to what you had seen someone else build that caused a great uh, you know, reception among the users and got that, that, that uh, creator or group of you know, creators fame and glory within the community. It's like, because that was the currency there. So you know, if you could do something better and add some features and you know, steal a little bit from all the other games and co- add some new stuff, 
And that was basically the pattern all through the 70s. There was this one group of 13-year-olds at one high school. They may have actually been in multiple high schools. A bunch of friends spent like four years working on a game, which was kind of like the equivalent of, you know, uh, a motion picture studio spending years preparing Star Wars, Mm -hmm. you know, for release. And they came out with a game called Avatar, which was, you know, the Mount Everest of dungeon games. It's been compared to, like, EverQuest. Absolutely, um, you know, had the same intensity and addictiveness, I mean, crazy addictiveness. People would stay out for multiple consecutive all-nighters, completely wrecking their personal relationships, their family relationships, their, their grades, you know, uh, their, their sleep, you know, everything, just to, like, go further into the dungeon and win, get more spells and weapons and gold and, you know, uh, become a really powerful wizard or whatever it was, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, the messaging within the game was really, really intense um, and going on constantly just flying uh, the messages between players and everything. And uh, so there was a lot of chat that had nothing to do with the game in addition to people, you know, um, uh, talking about, you know, mm-hmm. game strategy and all that kind of stuff. And you could go down in groups and, and fight against... Uh, so the whole notion of traveling in groups was totally there in all of these games. Moria was another classic right. group travel game down into the dungeons. And, the, and the, dungeon, the game designers had created it so that there was no way to survive on your own. You had to go in a group, which forced a social dimension to the game um, right from the very beginning. And so, you know, a lot of design sensibility that would emerge in the video games, you know, that we would see in the 90s and, and up to today on the web and on, on, on various game uh, platforms, um, those, those, those things were starting on Play-Doh. And a lot of times the designers moved off and worked in those games. So, you know, it wasn't like there's a disconnect. I mean, there is a general flow of the DNA out of Play-Doh into the gaming world. Uh, thinking of the social aspect, um, were there handles like? W- were you able? Was your personality able to travel with you to various places on Plato? Um, well, uh, your identity maybe more. Than yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. There were a couple things. Um, yeah, to get online, you had to have an account, which mm-hmm. was called a sign-on, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because um, it it was the cla- It was you know, uh, even today there's debates among real weebs about whether um, the word login is a noun <laughs> or is it a verb, right? Log in. And it basically it's one of these weird things that has become a noun. Yeah. It's like, well, what's your login, your right, password? Right. right. But you're basically describing a verb. <laughs> well, the, on Plato, which is this weird parallel universe where everything is almost the same, but just slightly different and different jargon, um, things were called sign-ons. And you signed on to the system and you had a password. And so, you know, um, and then to make it a little bit more complicated, your your sign-on consisted of two parts. Your name, which might be first, last, or some combination of, you know, whatever. um, And a group, which was, you know, the equivalent of today would be um, your name is everything to the left of the at symbol in your email address. And the group would be everything to the right of the at symbol in the email address. So it would be basically your domain. And that's how Plato's sign-ons were set up. And uh, that got you onto the system. But then when you went into some games, um, you could create your, any, your, your own name again. And um, the goal in so many of these games was to get um, onto the Hall of Fame, which was a game in its own right. Um, there's, you know, and and this, this was a classic uh, game design um, you know, fundamental f- design feature that you, you have to, it's not enough to just make a fun game. You also have to design something for the real masters of the game mm-hmm. so that um, there's another whole dimension to the game, which is, you know, now you're trying to, if you get on the Hall of Fame, you've got to stay on the Hall of Fame because once everyone else sees you made it, they're going to make it their mission in life to get you off the Hall of Fame. And so that was a whole sort of side dimension to all the games that were going on. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is kind of what the dynamics were like in that, 
community. And if anybody remembers arcades in the 80s, that right. sort of behavior continued. Right, right. Yeah. And there's been tons of movies mm-hmm. where they, they talk about the three initials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was just a, what was the uh, episode of one of the Netflix shows? Um, uh, Stranger Things. Stranger Things, yeah. right? Where, where uh, in, in the second series, mm-hmm. where they, t- they were, there's a whole yeah. uh, episode about the, the, the name and the Hall of Fame or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, so. You point out in the book that until about maybe 82, 83, um, Plato has a larger probable user base than ARPANET. The, the ARPANET would have. Right. Um, and then ARPANET sort of surpasses it about that point? Well, yeah. I mean, basically you have to understand that um, ARPANET was, was you know, growing and growing and growing. It was a very different kind of thing. You know, there, 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 there wasn't some service that you signed on to or logged into that said, welcome to ARPANET. Right. It wasn't an online service. It was the network. Mm-hmm. It was the underlying infrastructure between all these different computers and everything that enabled you to connect from one to the other. Um, and they, it's kind of funny, but for many years, they kept um, printed books of all the names and the email addresses of all the ARPANET users. And so there is like, you know, you can go back and look at these things. They still exist. And in fact, there was something on the net just a few months ago about that. Uh, someone had dug one up and was showing it around. Well, that book got a little thicker starting in the 80s as the, the number of users started growing. But it also suggests, you know, basically, again, the various labs in companies and in government and in universities that were all connected on the ARPANET we're doing much more serious stuff typically than the kind of crazy gamer hacker uh, scene that was going on on Plato, which was pretty wild and out of control. Um, you also under- understand that even that community of of serious developers and and all the gamers and the and the hacker types and the kids um, was but a fraction of the bigger Plato community, which was all the real reason Plato existed, which was education. Right. So you know, I've always estimated that you know maybe 90% of the user community on Plato were just legit students sitting down because they were told to once a week and take this hour lesson maybe it's a chemistry lab simulation of pouring some solution into a beaker and then watching it explode on screen rather than having explosions in the physical chemistry lab which would be much more expensive and dangerous so that was the kind of stuff they did all the time and um uh, that that community of users, some of them would discover that there was this cool social side to Plato, and if they made the leap to that cool social side, that might just wreck their academics forever. And there are numerous accounts of that in the book. Um, uh, it was a chronic problem and kind of an embarrassment and a great irony that you know this very system designed for students to be educated turned out to be the one thing that wrecked their educations. Um, you know, one guy told me that Plato was basically the best uh, pinboard, pinball machine ever created, you know, um, at, at that er- in that era. So, Well, I, I don't know uh, that I want to get into that. There's a whole other story about CDC, the corporation coming right. in, trying to commercialize it. Please, buy the book. There's, there's other entire layers to this story. Um, what... How we're talking about like the the ARPANET and then the internet overtaking it. What at its height, like what was the ultimate size or, or scale of that that Plato achieved? Well, um, you know, Control Data did an awful lot to get Plato out to the world, and um, uh, they did two things. They um, they offered complete standalone systems, turnkey solutions, where you could, if you were a big, huge university or you know, the NSA or some huge government agency, a lot of military bases decided to just buy their own Plato systems. So universities like University of Delaware, the University of uh, Nebraska, University of Quebec, University of Alberta, a whole bunch of universities in the UK, well, in Europe, UK, Sweden, a bunch of universities in um, South Africa. So uh, Australia, all kinds of places around the world bought their own Plato systems. Um, and then CDC also found that some people didn't want to spend all the $10 million on a, on a Plato system, but they wanted Plato. So they'd get a whole bunch of terminals, sometimes like dozens, if not hundreds, and they'd be connected over uh, you know, phone lines or whatever back to a system that Control Data was running 
essentially as a time-sharing service. So, you know, um, lots and lots of, so if you added it all up, you're talking about, you know, many, many thousands of users, probably in the hundreds of thousands, um, at any moment, any day, um, and probably, um, I don't know, something like 50 to 100 physical systems, maybe even more than that. Um, the thing is, a lot of the three-letter agency uh, uses of Plato are still basically classified. I couldn't get anything on them. So we don't know. We All we know is that their, their use was very clear. It was v- definitely happening. The scale of which um, we're not clear on, but most likely um, thousands of soldiers were being sent through it and learning Russian and learning um, cryptography and all kinds of crazy stuff that way through Plato as well. So, yeah, I mean, it was a... And then the National Association of Securities Dealers required Plato uh, for certification to become a stockbroker. Mm-hmm. So NASDAQ um, stockbrokers for like 10, 15 years used Plato, And that was one of the most profitable things CDC ever did. And, you know, that was gigantic nationwide use of Plato. Um, and, and then, you know, the airlines did the same thing. with The, the pilots were using, learning how to fly 767s using Plato all during the 80s and into the 90s. So, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of use cases. And it does add up to, you know, uh, uncounted thousands. I, I don't think you can say millions, but certainly um, north of, well north of 100,000 total uh, people, you know, in all walks of life mm-hmm. uh, using the system. So it wasn't, and then many of these physical Plato systems were interconnected uh, on on a basically a crude internet-like uh, network that was proprietary. They built it themselves. Uh, they they designed and invented and, and patented their own super high-speed modems that, you know, super high-speed meaning about 9,600 baud in 1976, mm-hmm. which was pretty blazing fast yeah. for um i was still on 1200 in you know 1989 so. right 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 yeah so i mean and they were multiplex so they could get a lot they could crank a lot of users through that and um so yeah that was how you for example connected to illinois through minnesota online in the 70s and what they did because they had these things linked they um all the email um could be sent so a sign-on now consisted of three things your name your group and the system. So it would be kind of like, you know, uh, blah, 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 dot domain.com rather than just domain.com. It was, it was a further extending of the whole network. So that's how that, you know, ex, you know Plato was kind of like a mini internet mm-hmm. of, of its own. And it got pretty darn big. Uh, so a few, a few closing questions. Um, you... Uh the, the book is largely making the point, which you say explicitly, like that you, you believe that Plato is the birth of the interpersonal computer revolution, not the personal computer revolution. Right. Um, and, and the reason are all the things we've just been talking about. But right. go into that a bit more. Why do you think it was the birth of this interpersonal computing? Um, well, uh, just look at the timing. Um, all this stuff started in 72. We're talking about the Plato 4 system. Um, and then really exploded in, in that 12-month period of, you know, like halfway into 73 and then halfway into 74. It was, um, and in that period, you basically suddenly had a, a complete suite of apps, as it were, that um, uh, were, were sufficiently addictive, but also sufficiently productive, you know, or product, uh, you know uh, uh, in terms of using for collaboration and uh uh, in a work context, it wasn't all fun and games. I mean, you could use the notes in the chat, and they did all day long for serious work, and it gave you an incredible advantage over any other project that, you know, especially if people are, are physically located in remote locations, different offices, as they were on Plato, to be able to just instantly chat with somebody was, you know, gigantic, and you didn't even have to track them down on the phone because everyone was on, always online. Um, so, um, and if you just look at the timing of this in a, in a, in a sort of a com- typical computer history timeline, um, uh, you know, this is a time when the founders of Google were still in diapers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were not players yet in this whole thing. Um, uh, Apple and Microsoft had not yet even been incorporated. Um, this is a time when 
the idea of a personal computer is essentially something like the um, Altair, which is a box with some blinking lights. A kit. Yes. A kit. Yeah. It, we're, you know, we're serious, diehard tinkerers loved this stuff. And yes, it was incredibly exciting. You could own your own personal computer. And within just months, you started seeing the basic programming language, which, you know, just like HTML and just like Tutor, um, uh, just uh, was a giant leap forward in terms of productivity, and you could do cool stuff and all that. And so, yeah. Um, the, but if you look at the personal computer revolution, basically, it's um, uh, it's a surfboard riding the Moore's law wave, right? Um, where every year the the chips are getting doubling in power and having and uh, you know uh, cutting it by half the the cost every single year. Uh, so things are getting faster, cheaper, smaller, better, and um, but they're all just lonely islands. They're not really interconnected. And yeah, you have your own personal computer, and you can hug it, and you know it's show it off to your friends at home and and that kind of thing. But you're not when you're looking at the screen, you're not looking at um, a community behind that screen that could be in the thousands, you know, um, who are there to chat with you and. Uh, you know, communicate with you and connect with you and all that. That wasn't even the thinking behind personal computing. Um, it has become that now. And really, when we talk about personal computing now, we're really talking about deep, deep levels of interpersonal computing. Um, and that is, the, that is now the real definition of personal computing. But I would argue, with this book, I think things can now be seen in a different light because we never had this evidence documented before in an accessible way. And um, that was one of the great tragedies of the whole history of computing in the last 30, 40 years, is that every single book that came out, even all the best-selling ones, um, would not even have one mention of, of Plato in the index of that book. Well, that was actually going to be my next question. Um, to the extent that you have a theory on this, mm -hmm. Why has Plato slipped through the historical cracks, as it were? Um, well, a number of reasons. One, um, it, uh, the, the personal computer revolution was so overwhelming and um, came on so fast and added a new dimension that hadn't existed with Plato, which was money. You could grow rich doing personal computing, and we have billionaires galore to prove it, right? Um, and, and then many, many orders of magnitude more millionaires to prove it too. And, and stories of all these success stories. It was basically a gold rush. And, you know, in America, gold rush, gold rushes rule in terms of history. If you look at the, the whole, you know, move west of, of civilization, you know, wiping out anything in its way to get to the gold, you know. And I think... The, the, the rise of personal computing and then the web and the internet and everything is a gigantic gold rush that we're still going through. You know, um, Plato didn't have that. Um, so it basically just got completely trampled by um, this new thing that was shiny and that got media attention. Plato didn't get media attention. Um, you could go and jump up and down and show the orange screen to you know the New York Times and the Washington Post all day long, or or try to get someone from 60 Minutes or some television show to do a segment on Plato, and you know I've often likened likened it to trying you know put a dog in front of a television and tell them to watch, and they'll just have this blank stare in their face for a few seconds and then they'll turn away because they they don't see it, and I and most people just couldn't get it. They had no reason to understand why it was cool or whatever. It, it, it took a long time to educate the, main, the, 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 the mainstream public um, that this stuff was really powerful. You know, it would take 25 more years. You know, even in the 90s, it was still sort of nerdy, you know, up, up to like 95 or whatever. There was still a relatively small population. Remember, we called it the information superhighway. I used to call it the information footpath, mm -hmm. you know. But, I mean, it was modest, well, you know. Well, I'm going to make a direct analog that I know you're aware of, but um, since this is on, on this show, I've gone into great detail about um, Netscape being sort of the opening bell of, of the modern Internet era. Right. The exact analog is it's a nut... 
Mosaic is a project at the University of Illinois yep. that it, it's not until they leave the university and go out west yep. and form Netscape and then have this multi-billion dollar IPO, that's the riches that you're talking about. That's the difference. Had they never left Illinois, had it maintained just the Mosaic project, yep. would it have had the same impact that Netscape had? Um, it, 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 it actually might have, mm-hmm. because there was another browser company in right. Illinois, Spyglass. Spyglass. And, and, they, and they, some they, of the Spyglass people yes. were Plato people. One yes. of them was Brand Fortner, who had written Air Fight, one of the best uh, air combat games ever done. Totally multiplayer, insanely addictive. Um, that was done in, like, you know, 74. So, and then he went on to great fame uh, as, you know, working at NCSA mm-hmm. in scientific vis- visualization. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he was one of the, I think, founders, if not, you know, certainly one of the early people in Spyglass. Right. And uh, Spyglass had a spectacular IPO. Yep. Um, of course, Spyglass, who are they, right? Well, I've had a couple of them <laughs> on the show. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there yeah, you yeah. go. That's great. Um, so that's, that's comprehensive. Again, the book is uh, The Friendly Orange Glow. Uh, by Brian Deere. It is available everywhere books are sold. Uh, I want to point out that this is one of the most intensely researched uh, technology history books I've ever seen. This is 30 years in the making. Yep. You have, I think, maybe a thousand personal interviews and and things like that. yeah, it was about uh, 13,000, 14,000 emails mm-hmm. since 1996. And um, uh, 7 million words of typed interview transcripts. I don't know if you transcri- transcribe this, but That's if you do, my them. sympathies. <laughs> no, I throw them all up uh, in, into the world, and that way I don't have to transcribe Right, them. right. Someone can come behind me and do that, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to do this whole thing as a movie documentary, to tell you the truth, mm-hmm. way early on. But the cost was just crazy because when I started this project it would have had to have been film. Yeah. And you know, or, or or like, you know, cheap videotape and I and it would have looked really crummy. I mean if, if I could have done it in HD I probably would have done it. If 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 the equipment that exists today, mm-hmm. heck I would have done the whole thing on iPhones right, for crying right, out loud. Exactly, exactly. It'd be gorgeous. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to do a documentary, it would have saved me a heck of a lot of time. I would have spent years in editing and post production, quote unquote, but you know, it would have come out as a movie. Um, just, you know, a 22-hour movie, right? <laughs> well, you know, that's what things like Netflix are there for now, you know. Right. So 22 one-hour episodes. <laughs> there you go. It's a, 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 Exactly. Total, you know, binge-worthy. Exactly. <laughs> well, the, the point of the book, I think, um, clearly for Brian is to correct this um, historical oversight of the importance of Plato and I do not believe that there will ever be a more comprehensive look at this particular story. I highly recommend it. Uh, the Friendly Orange Glow. Brian Deere, thank you for coming on the show and, and telling us about Plato and the book. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes, because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.